That's awesome. All right. Hey, uh, anybody tired? <laughs> anybody stay up late with a dumb grin on your face for like an hour just watching? <laughs> just so happy for Dusty, right? It's all so good. Um, he, he actually said something on the telecast last night, which I thought was really profound. He just said, like, you know, for just a moment, like, just sports has the ability to bring us all together, which, I mean, really, like, in that building and then across our city, I mean, doesn't matter your faith, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your political persuasion. Like, we were all just really happy. We all had a stupid grin on our face for about an hour last night. And that's really good. That is one thing that I do really appreciate, um, just about sports and about what's been happening here for the past few weeks. But <clears throat> that's all true. But here we are, it's Sunday, tomorrow will be Monday, we go back to the world that those are good moments, but they don't fix what's really broken, right? So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've had this really specific purpose uh, as we've been doing this. Uh, we want to define as a church, we want to define the terms gospel and disciple. We want to answer the question, what is the gospel and what is a disciple? If we're, if we're going to be bearers of this good news into the world, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus, then we need to be able to define these terms. Uh, now, Mark's gospel, uh, some of you may know this, but Mark's gospel is the first of the four gospels. It's not the first in order. It's not the first one in your Bible, but it was the first one written. Now, today, as I said, is All Saints Day, right? We recognize those from our church who have gone on to rest, to be in the presence of God forever. What you may not realize is that Mark wrote his gospel after and as the first generation of disciples were beginning to form that church triumphant, as that first generation of disciples were beginning to die. And the reason that that's important is because that tells us that Mark's gospel was written after the first churches on earth were already up and running. They were already worshiping, they were already serving, they were already telling the world the good news. Now when you're aware of that, that actually will help you to see what Mark is doing. When Mark and the others, when they write their gospels, what they're doing is they're giving us a reliable witness to the person and the work of Jesus so that we can know who Jesus is. But Mark is also equipping us. He's equipping us to help us deal with some really practical issues. The stories that he chooses to tell. John's gospel says, I could have told you stories for ages, but I've chosen to tell you these. The reason Mark chose certain stories is because these stories help address some of the issues that the first Christians were dealing with. These stories help to address issues that the first churches were fighting about. <laughs> Even back then. You know, the church has always been a mess from the very start. And Mark's helping to address some of that. One of the hot topics in the church at the time, one of the things that they fought about was dinner. <laughs> they, fought, they fought about meals. Um, how to eat together. Like when to eat together. Who they should eat with. What they were allowed to eat. Now if you look at the issues that are raised by the religious leaders, the confrontations that they've been having with Jesus in Mark's gospel so far, especially if you go back and read chapter 2, what were he and his disciples accused of? They were accused of eating food obtained on the wrong day, eating with the wrong kind of people, even eating at the wrong time. This morning we're going to read another story. This is a fourth controversy, again, about food. I didn't realize these religious leaders were such foodies. Um, but <laughs> another controversy about food, and this time some of Jesus' disciples, they're eating their food the wrong way. 
So these are four different controversies, all involving food, but as is often the case, we're going to see that these controversies aren't really about food at all, right? So let's read Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. I'm going to skip a piece in the middle and then go to verses 14 through 23. You can go home and read that piece in the middle on your own today. So listen to this. This is Mark 7, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Pharisees and some of the experts in the law who came from Jerusalem gathered around him. And they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate their bread with unclean hands, that is, unwashed. And Mark puts this next section in parentheses because he's given us a little commentary. He wants to explain this a little deeper. He says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they perform a ritual washing, holding fast to the tradition of the elders. When they come to the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they also hold fast to many other traditions, the washing of their cups, pots, kettles, and even their couches. In parentheses. The Pharisees and the experts in the law asked Jesus, they said, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with unwashed hands? And he said to them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. <laughs> do you think that's what they were expecting? <laughs> Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Okay, before I read the next section, I want to share this with you. This comes from Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King. I've mentioned it a number of times in this series. Uh, He says this. He says, over the centuries, people have fasted from food during seasons of prayer. Why? Because fasting is an aid to help develop a spiritual hunger for God. He says people of various faiths kneel before they pray. It's pretty uncomfortable. Why do they do it? Because it's an aid to help us develop spiritual humility. So the washings and efforts to stay clean and free from dirt and disease used by religious people in Jesus' day, they were a kind of visual aid. They enabled them to recognize that they were spiritually and morally unclean, that they couldn't enter the presence of God unless there was some kind of spiritual purification. Okay, that was the reason for these things. But did you know, in the Old Testament, there are 613 laws. Of the 613 laws in the Old Testament, God never commands the people to wash before they eat. That is not part of the law of God. That's a command that's given only to the priests of Israel, not to the people. That's why Mark describes these things as the traditions of the elders, not as the laws of God. These religious leaders are not defending the law of God as they are confronting Jesus. They're defending their own religious traditions. Now these practices are good, right? They're meant to serve, as Keller said, as a visual aid to remind us of something to remind us that we're not clean. (laughs) And that's good. But these religious leaders turned what was meant for good into a burden that nobody could bear, burdens that actually, they ultimately separate people from their God. They were turning these practices into the means by which we become clean. They thought that this was how we are saved. That was never God's plan. Keller goes on to say this. He says, Jesus couldn't have agreed more with the religious leaders of his day about the fact that we are unclean before God, unfit for the presence of God, but he disagreed with them about the source of the uncleanliness and about how to address it. 
So let me keep reading, starting in verse 14. Jesus called the crowd again and he said to them, listen to me, everyone, and understand there is nothing outside of a person that can defile him by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. Does that seem pretty clear? So listen to this. Now, when Jesus had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. (laughs) What does it mean? How many times does it take a disciple to learn? (laughs) He said to them, are you so foolish? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? For it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and then goes out into the sewer. This means that all food are now clean. He said what comes out of a person defiles him. For from within, out of the human heart, come evil ideas, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil, deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, and folly. All of these evils come from within. And that is what defiles a person. Now, cleanliness was a big deal for Israel. And it makes sense why. God did give certain commands about what to eat, about how to prepare the meals, etc. But he did it for a reason. He did it to set Israel apart as different from all the nations around them. Those 613 laws in the Old Testament, they were never a means of salvation. They were a way of designating Israel as a people that belonged to God. It was a way to show Israel how to live differently than the world around them. They were a way of showing the world around them that there is just a different way to live. When God gave them these laws, when he said that certain foods were unclean, he never said the food itself was unclean. If you notice the orange, what he says is, it's unclean for you. It's unclean for Israel. See, God was forming a people with different customs, with a different way of life so that they could be a light to the nation, so that they could reveal the nature of a God who is very different from any other they had ever heard from before. That was the purpose. So in light of the purpose and in light of what you've heard Jesus say, like, can you see what he's not doing? Start with the negative. Jesus is not telling us to get rid of our practices. He's not saying, get rid of all the traditions that you have. He's not saying your traditions that serve as visual aids to remind you of who you are and who God is, that they don't matter anymore. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying, get rid of your traditions. He's not saying, we don't have to wash our hands before we eat. (laughs) You should still do that. It's pretty good advice. What he's saying is it's time to focus our attention on the practices that put Jesus on display for the world to see. I want you to think about that list of what makes us unclean. That list is really organized. It's very intentional. There are 12 evils in that list. 12 things that make us unclean. 12 things that separate us from God. Things that make us unfit to stand in the presence of a holy God. That list is split evenly. There are evil intentions and there are evil deeds. Six of those are plural in Greek, which means that they're the things that we repeat over and over, the things we do. Six of them, uh, those are like the sexual immorality, theft, murder, debauchery, slander, adultery. But then the other six are singular. That means that they're like character traits. 
greed, deceit, envy, pride, foolishness. Even evil is one of those character traits. Okay, so you don't have to raise your hand. This can be rhetorical, but uh, who in this room is innocent of every evil on that list? Now, you're not guilty of all of them, (laughs) I hope. But we're not innocent either, y'all. And we find these lists all throughout the New Testament. And they cover all the extremes from murder and witchcraft all the way to lies. And wherever you are on the spectrum, these are the things that make us unclean and they come from in here. The devil is real. There are spiritual forces at work against us, but we can't run around saying the devil made me do it. It comes from within. Y'all listen, the story ends there. This goes on to a new story, okay? (laughs) Jesus' word, they're not meant to be comforting. He doesn't say this to absolve us from guilt. He's actually making guilt universal. (laughs) He's speaking the truth that every single one of us are sinful. And in comparison to a holy and righteous God, we are simply unclean and we are unworthy. Now, I think that's obvious. I mean, just look around. Look at yourself. Look at the world. I think it's obvious. But it's actually one of the great objections that people have to our faith. Now, I shared this with you before, but years ago, uh, we had a confirmation class, and I wrote a statement of faith just as an example of of what they were going to produce at the end of the class. And in that statement, I declared that I am a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner. Okay, that's pretty dramatic, right? (laughs) Maybe I was being dramatic, try to soften the blow of the language by using more dramatic language, but it's true either way, right? A dirty, filthy, rotten sinner. All right, so one of our students at the end of the class, he turns in a statement of faith um, and, and it said, anyone want to guess what it said? <laughs> it didn't just say it, it started with, <laughs> I am a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner. <laughs> so let's just say mom wasn't really happy about that. Um, Mom wasn't really happy with the youth director (laughs) that inspired that. And I mean, I get it because that's not how we see our kids, right? Maybe sometimes we do, but not typically. Um, We don't typically see people as unclean or dirty or evil. At least the people we like or the people that are like us. We don't tend to see them as dirty or unclean or evil. Especially in modern sophisticated times, we see people as basically good. Not evil. Y'all, I hear this all the time in this building, in Bible studies. People are basically good. If we're basically good, then why is there all this chaos around us? Where's it coming from? What is it that keeps me up at night? You see, we see people as basically good because when we think about sin, we think about it horizontally. We only think about it as what happens between us. And clearly, horizontally speaking, murder is worse than lying. But y'all, we have to see sin vertically. We have to see it first as the thing that separates us, the thing that has broken our relationship with God. And that's how we miss the point. Because when you see those sins vertically, a holy God and unholy people, it's all wrong. From the witchcraft to the lies, it all makes us unclean. And it is deep within every human heart. This is hard for the world to understand. It's sometimes hard for the church to understand. And it's causing a lot of confusion. Keller says this. 
he says, uh, we, we live in a world now where we don't believe in judgment, where we don't believe in sin, and yet we still feel that there's something wrong with us. We have a deep sense that we've got to hide our true selves or at least control what people know about us. Secretly, we feel that we aren't acceptable, that we have to prove to ourselves and other people that we're worthy, lovable, and valuable. Like we can believe that people are generally good all we want, but I'm telling you deep down, everybody knows that something's not right. At one time or another, we all experience an overwhelming sense of shame, not always because we've done something wrong, but because we recognize that there's just something wrong. Something is wrong with us. We're ashamed, but we don't even understand why. Jesus tells us why. In the heart of every human person is the stuff that makes us unclean. We are unholy, unclean, we are unfit for the presence of a holy God. The question is, what can we do about it? How can we make ourselves clean again? After hearing all that bad news, so what, right? The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had a lot of prescriptions. Washing your hands, was, it just scratched the surface. They had thousands and thousands of ways to go about being made clean but all of their attempts to get clean, it only addressed what was on the outside. And that means it's really nothing more than performance art. No, you can't wash your hands enough. There's no exfoliating that's gonna dig all the way down to the source of our uncleanliness. I've quoted Keller's book a lot today, but this chapter, chapter seven, and Jesus the King, it's really profound, and I don't expect that you're all gonna go read it, so I just wanna share some things with you. Um, He argues that there are all kinds of ways that we look to make ourselves clean. Um, but just like the leaders in Jesus's day were looking outside of ourselves to clean only what's outside of ourselves. He gives a bunch of examples, but he says we look to culture. Uh, we start by comparing ourselves to others, right? That's, that's a fun one. <laughs> I mean, certainly I'm better than them, right? <laughs> now, maybe. The problem is that in practice, When we start down that road of comparing ourselves to others, y'all, that road goes both ways and it can backfire quick. Keller mentions the editor of the series of magazines for young women, uh, kids' magazines were these printed papers that we used to mail out and buy at book stands and newsstands. Um, Now it's just all online, so we don't have to worry about that. But anyway, uh, the editor of the series of magazines for young women like YM, L, Jane, there's a bunch of them. Uh, They... They look to the stars, right? They look to celebrities, to the influencers of the day to help insignificant people like us learn how we too can experience the life of the rich and famous or at least live it vicariously through them. Uh, I wanna read you what she wrote and I'm quoting Keller who's quoting her, but she writes this. She says, why do we crave celebrities? Here's my theory, to be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities and we seek to look like them, but it's so dumb. We worship them because we feel inconsequential, but doing it makes us feel even worse. And then she goes on to say this. She says, and I'm a part of this whole process as an editor of this magazine, and no wonder I feel soiled at the end of the day. Like influencers today tell us that one way to get clean is to be attractive to others in in many ways, right? So change your products, change your clothes, change your hair, change your body, your portfolio maybe. Become attractive to others, but... 
but it only makes us feel worse because I think what we all realize as we get older, what we realize is it's never gonna be enough, right? It's never enough, never pretty enough. You never have enough, never good enough. Listen, I need to eat right and I need to get in shape. That's good. But we can't get clean by just dealing with what's outside. He'll go on to argue, he'll say, we often turn to politics to make ourselves clean as a society. Now, a political worldview will make the case that the wrongs in a society, they don't stem from human hearts, they stem from systems and social structures. It's, it's the other party's fault. If we can just fix the structures, if we can just throw the other guys out, then everything's gonna be okay. Now listen, don't get me wrong. It's really important to be active in the process, of course. Participate, right? We got an election coming up. Go do your job, it's good. Fixing systems and structures is important work. But it's still an attempt to get clean from the outside in. It can make things better, but it'll never fix what's broken. So what can we do about it? How can we make ourselves clean? You ready for good news? What can we do about it? Nothing. There is nothing you can do about it. There is nothing you can do to make yourself clean. And I'm telling you that's really good news. Do you know why? Because you can stop trying. You can stop wearing yourself out. You can stop scrubbing the skin off your hands hoping that your heart will change. You can stop being exhausted by the expectations of the world and recognize that the only thing that needs to be done has been done for you. In the Gospels, Jesus, he encounters the sick and the possessed. And he heals them and he restores them in relationship. We talked about this last week. He restores their relationships with themselves, with their community, and with God. Now, the sick and possessed, did they heal themselves? What did they do to heal themselves? They didn't do anything except they turned and surrendered to Jesus. In one way or another, they all turned to Jesus. He's the one that did all the work. How can we heal our broken relationship with God? How can we make ourselves clean again? We can't do anything to make ourselves clean again, but there is somewhere we can turn. There's someone we can turn to. Only Jesus can heal us and make us clean. And y'all, when that happens, the only appropriate response to what Jesus has done is to surrender and turn to him. The incredible news is that when we surrender and turn to him, he doesn't just make us better people. Y'all, this isn't about self-improvement. He's making us a new creation, not just a better version of Chad. He's making us a reflection of himself. Like when this happens, life is never the same again. We're not perfect, but, be, but we are being made holy. We are being perfected. That's what the word sanctified means, sanctification, the process of being made holy. It begins when you receive Jesus. It's complete when we join the church triumphant. But throughout that process, he's restoring the broken image in us so that we can reflect God's nature, his love and his mercy to a world around us that really needs it. 
And he's giving us the power and the ability day by day to do that more and more. So maybe the final question today isn't so what? I haven't given you much to go do, right? So maybe the final question is now what? Like now, now what are you gonna go do? And listen, this is hard. And I'm gonna say a bunch of general things and I just want you to reflect on them yourself. Not all of these things apply to everybody here, okay? Now what can we go do? The first thing we need to do is consider the cost. We need to consider the price he paid. We need to consider what had to happen for him to take that evil in my heart and make it clean again. His blood for mine. That he suffered and died so that we might live. That he was alienated from God because he bore the weight of every sin. He became our sin. He became our shame. But then his loving sacrifice was redeemed and the mission was made complete when he was raised on that first Easter Sunday. And listen, this is really important. Everything I just said, if none of that is true, then y'all, there is no hope. 1 Corinthians 15 makes that really clear. If what I just said is not true, then there is no hope. The world's just gonna keep going as it is until one day it doesn't. If the gospel is not true, there is no hope. But if it's true, and we come to this understanding by grace through faith, if it is true, if it's really true, then y'all, that means that everything has changed. If it's true, it changes everything. For all creation, for all reality, and it changes the way that we live our daily lives. So listen, if you believe that it's true, the real question is, what are you now willing to do for him? If he did all that for you, what are you now willing to do for him? Not to make yourself clean, you can't do that. But to begin to live in this new reality that he's created for you. To live out of gratitude for the gift that you've been given. If you truly understand the cost, can you let your commitment to him and to his church just be one among many other commitments that you have in your life? Can your faith really be equal with the other things in your life? Or should it stand out? Should it stand apart? If you believe this gospel message is true, then is gathering with your church to worship him only when it's convenient, is that sufficient? Is reading your Bible once or twice a year, is that even effective? Does that accomplish anything? Is turning to him in prayer only when you need something, is that in any way appropriate? Is loving others only when they're good and lovable and love you in return, is that really an expression of God's love for us? Like what kind of relationship works that way? Name me one healthy relationship that works that way, where you show up only when it's convenient where you only talk once or twice a year and typically only when you need something from them. That's not a relationship. That's utility. No relationship works that way. But doing these things won't make you clean. But a heart that's been made clean, a clean heart is a heart that desires him. And I'm telling you, he can be found and he deserves to be first. Not just one among many other commitments. He deserves to be first. 
I am a better husband when I put him first. I'm a better father when I put him first. I'm a better friend when I put him first. I'm a better pastor. I'm a better coworker when I put him first. Not because he's making me a better version of me, but because he's making me more like him. He's making me a new creation. And that is the gift that has been offered to every single one of us. If you believe it's true, what are you willing to do as a response? So in just a minute, John's gonna play. Um, I wanna end in a different way. I'm not gonna pray for us. Instead, as John plays, I just wanna lead us in a time of just silent reflection. And I wanna invite you to do the praying. I wanna invite you just to take a couple minutes and you do this work with God. Reflect on all of this. And this is hard work, but I wanna invite you to reflect on your own brokenness and then reflect on the gift that you've been given. I wanna invite you to look up at the cross and reflect on what's been done for you to fix what's broken deep within you. And then I wanna invite you to accept the truth that you are being made new, that you are being made holy and then reflect on the ways that you're responding to him now and the ways that God is inviting you to respond to him when you leave this place today. Does that make sense? So let's just take a minute, each of us silently between us and God as John plays and do this quiet reflection.